Open up your Bibles this morning to um, one of the most famous passages in all of the Scriptures, and that is 1 Corinthians 13, known by many as the love chapter. We're going to read the whole chapter here in a bit, but we're going to focus today on verses 1 through 3. All right, I'm going to need some help from some kids here this morning. How many of you out there are good at math? Really, there's only two or three math kids in the whole church? Uh, I didn't say how many of you like math. How many of you are good at it? Okay, there's some in the back there. Okay, so I'm going to need your help here. I'm going to put a number on the screen. Tell me what this number is. This is the number, well, actually, take it back. There's two numbers. There's zero and zero. So here's the math quiz. Ready? What does that equal? Good job. I even heard more voices than I saw hands. So see, you are good at math. You just don't know it. All right. It's going to get more complicated here. You ready? We're going to add some more zeros. So I'm, instead of just two zeros, I'm going to have three up there now. What number is that? Really? Even with three zeros, it's still zero? All right, let's keep going here. How about now? Okay, how about now? 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 What? And this? Still zero? Okay, you're right. See, I knew you guys were math whizzes in here. All of those things, all those zeros, even though now we have what, nine zeros up there, it's still zero. Matter of fact, let me ask you a question. If I had a thousand zeros on that screen and all I had was zeros, what would I have? Nothing, right? I'd have zero. So let's make a change here. You ready? One change, one simple change. Here we go. All right. Now what do I have? One billion, right? One billion. One little bitty change, one little bitty number, turns all those zeros, which add up to nothing, all those zeros which are useless, it turns that all those zeros into this gigantic, huge number. The, the number at the beginning made all the difference, didn't it? Now, as we get in today's text, I want you to see that there's something that we must have in our life that makes all the difference in the world. I want you to see this morning that the zeros here, see each one of these zeros, these zeros, they represent our giftedness, our talents, perhaps our zeal, our calling, even our faith. All this, our talents, our gifts, our calling, our faith, everything that God's given us. And I want us to see this morning, without something, without something in our life, it's all nothing. And that something is love. That first digit right there, that number one, represents love. Now let me change the number to a, to a two. And now we have two billion up there. Just as the number two gives even more value, more meaning to that row of zeros than the number one did, so too, more and more and more of true Christian love in our lives adds exponentially greater value to our gifts, to our zeal, to our faith that God has already given us. And so, this morning we see that in this passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and particularly in the first three verses. Please stand now, if you would, as we read this chapter. But we're going to focus in this morning our sermon on simply those first three verses. Now, I'm going to hit the rest of the chapter next week, but for today, verses one through three. 
But let's read this entire love chapter from the infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient Word of God. Verse 1 says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture. It's so easy with familiar passages of Scripture like this to get so used to them, so used to hearing these words that we forget how glorious they are. So Lord, this morning we pray that your word would have its effect. We know that your word does not return void. And so we pray that you'd open up our hearts to receive it, uh, give us ears to hear it, Lord, give me a mouth to speak it accurately, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, we've broken away from our normal practice of preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible to do a topical series on healthy church membership. We've entitled this series, A Healthy Body. Now, to set the stage for this series, three weeks ago we talked about the nature of the church by going to Matthew 16, 18, where we read where Jesus said, I will build my church. And in those words, we see that Jesus is the architect. He is the builder. He is the owner of the church. The church, therefore, is not a human institution. Then two weeks ago, we shifted from the nature of the church to look at the purpose of the church. And in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16, we saw that the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth, meaning that the church is to uphold, to display, and to protect the truth of the gospel. And one of the ways... To do that, one of the ways we display the gospel is in how we minister to one another. The onlooking world should look at the church and see that the gospel is being lived out in its members. They should see that it's being lived out in the way we care for one another. So in that passage where Paul says that his purpose for writing was so that one may know how he ought to behave in the household of God, I argue that Paul is referring not, not to how we behave when we are physically inside of a building, but how we treat one another all the time. And so from the nature of the church and then the purpose of the church, we moved last week to the ministry of the church. And this is where we're going to be hanging out for the remainder of this series. We're going to be looking at the ministry of the church. 
I mentioned to you that there are 59 one another passages in the scripture. And those one another's are all about how we minister to one another in the church, how we conduct ourselves in the household of God. And last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, and we saw the foundational one another that drives all the other one another's is that we are members of one another. Meaning that because we are each individually united to Christ by faith, we are thereby united to one another and we must live for one another. Therefore, in the church, there is unity amidst diversity under the sovereignty of God. And thus, that is where we find our identity in a very real and mystical way. We are the body of Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, we read that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So that set the stage for us now looking at the other one another passages. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to break the 59 one another passages into four general categories. First of all, loving one another, which covers about one third of all the one another passages. About one third of the 59 one another's has to do with loving one another. And so we're going to look at that this week. And we're going to look at that next week as well. And then we're going to talk about serving one another on October 29th. And then on November 5th, teaching one another. And then finally, be at peace with one another on November 12th. So today and next week, we'll be looking at loving one another. And that's why we're in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Now, this passage is oft quoted. It is frequently used at weddings. It appears on everything from bumper stickers to Valentine's cards. But too often, it is used without any consideration of its context. So I wanted to tell you this morning an amazing hermeneutical insight, an interpretational insight about this passage. Are you ready? Here we go. 1 Corinthians 13 follows 1 Corinthians 12 and comes before 1 Corinthians 14. There you go. Did you get that? I hope I'm not going over your heads here. That's the amazing hermeneutical principle of any passage of Scripture. It's that it's within a context. And so we need to know that. I'll remind you that the church in Corinth, to whom this was originally written, was a mess. There was division. There was confusion. All driven by church members whose hearts and affections were focused in on themselves. They were were turned in on themselves. Remember last week from chapter 12, we saw two different sinful attitudes. Number one, an attitude of downplaying our importance to the body, a self-focused attitude inferiority complex, and then number two, an attitude of overestimating our importance to the body, a self-focused superiority complex. And both of these sinful attitudes led the Corinthians to view their individual spiritual giftedness in a very distorted and dangerous way. Paul will go on to talk some more about the proper use of their giftedness in chapter 14. So in chapter 12, he talks about your union as a body and how God's gifted each one of you differently and how you should use those gifts to to love on one another. And then in chapter 14, he's going to come back to how you use those gifts. But right here, sandwiched right in between these two discussions of the gifts, we have this chapter on love. Love shifts the focus of our giftedness from being an inward thing to being an outward thing. Love changes us from from turning our our, our thoughts in on ourselves to thinking about how we can build up others. So that's why this chapter is right here between chapter 12 and chapter 14. Now chapter 13 here that we're looking at naturally breaks into three parts. And you can go ahead and put these in your notes. So here's the three parts of chapter 13. 
First of all, there's the requirement of love, which we're going to look at today in verses 1 through 3, the requirement of love. Okay, and then in the next week, okay, we'll look at the next two pieces of this chapter. The second part of this chapter are the characteristics of love, verses 4 through 7. So today, we're going to be talking about the necessity of love and the requirement of love. And you may be sitting there going, okay, Steve, I hear you saying love and build up the body. How do I, how do, I do that? Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about that today, but we'll get into that a whole lot more next week when we talk about the characteristics of love. Finally, the permanence of love in verses 8 through 13. So today we are looking at the requirement of love. What Paul teaches us very clearly in these first three verses is that love is the sine qua non, meaning the thing that is the essential element without which we aren't truly Christians. Without love, we are not truly Christians. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love really is the lifeblood of true Christian faith, of true saving faith. If you claim to be a recipient of God's grace, to have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, then it is necessary that you have love. Jonathan Edwards wrote an amazing little book called Charity and Its Fruits. It's an exposition of this chapter, chapter 13. And in that book, Edwards writes, Love is always contained in a true and living faith, and that it is the true and proper life and soul, without which faith is as dead as the body is without its soul. And that it is that which especially distinguishes a living faith from every other. Without love, there can be no hearty submission to the will of God. And there can be no real and cordial trust and confidence in him. He that does not love God will not trust him. He never will. With true acquiescence of the soul, cast himself into the hands of God or into the arms of his mercy. So love is absolutely necessary if we have true faith. Not only love for God, but also love for man. Galatians 5, 6 speaks about our faith working through love. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. We talked about what that meant back when we preached through Galatians a while back. And it says this, but only faith working through love. So we see that true faith in God must possess love. And what's more, true love for God necessarily produces love for our fellow man. Love for God and love for man are inseparably linked together. Romans 13, 8 teaches us what is taught in many, many other places in the Scripture, which is namely that the one who loves another has fulfilled the whole law. The Ten Commandments boil down to loving God and loving our fellow man. And there is no way that these two can be in any way separated. Again, Jonathan Edwards says, Christian love, both to God and man, is wrought in the heart by the same work of the Spirit. Listen to that again. Christian love, both to God and man, is wrought in the heart by the same work of the Spirit. There are not two works of the Spirit of God, one to infuse a spirit of love to God and another to infuse a spirit of love to men, but in producing one, the Spirit produces the other also. Do you see how interconnected our love for God and our love for man is? So let us now look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, regarding the requirement or the necessity or the indispensability of love. And the first thing 
Paul wants to show us is simply this. Boldly and eloquently speaking the truth without love proclaims nothing. Boldly and eloquently speaking the truth without love proclaims nothing. Verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Tongues of men. In this context of 1 Corinthians, certainly Paul is referring to the supernatural revelatory gift of tongues given at Pentecost that enabled men to proclaim the gospel in a language that was not their own. The word tongues simply means languages. This gift was necessary in the early church in order to facilitate the rapid expansion of the gospel toward the ends of the earth. But the Corinthian church was overly fascinated with tongues and had greatly misused the gift. The Corinthians viewed tongues as a mark of higher spirituality. So instead of using the gift as a means to reach others with the gospel, in other words, instead of it being outward focused, they were using it to draw attention to themselves. The focus of their gifts were turned in on themselves. But today we have the scriptures. The gift of tongues is not a normative gift today, nor is it necessary today. So how does, how does this text here apply to us then? Well, we may not speak forth the gospel in tongues, but we are called still to speak forth the gospel and continue proclaiming it to the ends of the earth. And friends, it matters how we do that. It matters in what manner we do that. And that's Paul's point, and that's what he's continuing to drive home when he says tongues of men and of angels. I do not believe and of angels is referring to some sort of mysterious angelic prayer language. I think it's foolish to get that from this passage. This phrase is simply Paul using lofty and soaring language to drive home his point. It's like someone saying, I would move heaven and earth to be with you. And we see Paul do the same thing in the next two verses where he he uses sort of extreme and lofty language. Paul here is simply saying, if you boldly speak God's truth with human eloquence or angelic ecstasy, it's nothing if you do not have love. It's nothing if it is not aimed to build others up in love. You become a noisy gong. Literally, that's a resounding copper. Corinth was famous for its copper products. You're a resounding copper or a clanging cymbal. Cymbals produce noise, but no melody, right? Any of you guys have ever bought a drum kit for your kids, you know that. It produces noise, but no melody. Is that helpful? Are you enjoying that? Is that building you up? You want me to keep going? No. That's the truth absent from love. Right there. If we speak God's truth, the truth, the infallible, inerrant, glorious truth of God's word, no matter how accurately, no matter eloquently, no matter how powerfully, no matter how persuasively, but if we speak it without our words being driven by and saturated with love, it's useless. Interestingly enough, gongs and cymbals were frequently used in the pagan worship in Corinth. So it's as if Paul was saying, your speaking is no better than the pagan worship if it's done without love. 
your proclamation of God's word is no better than the pagan worship going down at the temple to Dionysus if it has no love. Do you see a lack of love drowns out your message? You proclaim nothing, but it's really more than that. Look at the text again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, listen to this, I am. Literally, it should read, I have become. I have become a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. Friends, Paul is not just saying that our loveless manner of speaking becomes the noisy gong and the symbol. He's saying that we become those things. Essentially, Paul is saying that our identity is changed. We become something we were never meant to be. D.A. Carson, on this text, he says, this value judgment is meant to be shocking. What you're expecting to hear, let me break away from D.A. What you're expecting to hear here is say that if you speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, your message is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. But D.A. Carson points it out. This judgment value is meant to be shocking. Part of its power is that Paul does not merely say that under this condition, that is the condition of speaking in tongues without love, the gift of tongues is not only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, but I myself, as if my action of speaking in tongues without love has left a permanent effect on me that has diminished my value and transformed me into something I should not be. Oh, friends, what were you designed to be? What were you designed to do? Let me remind us of Ephesians chapter 4, a verse that we've referred to many times as we've been going through this series. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now I want to jump now to verse 15. Verse 15 says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in, what's the next word? Love. Builds itself up in love. You were designed to build up the body of Christ in love. And love fuels not only our truth speaking inside the church. That's the primary meaning of what Paul's talking about here. How we speak to one another. It fuels not only our truth speaking inside the church, but also how we speak outside the church. There's a couple of texts we could go to here. 1 Peter 3, 15, but... Let me just go to Colossians 4, 5. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. It can be translated loving. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Of course, we know. It goes without saying here at Harbors. We know that the biblical truth itself, because it confronts men's sin and calls on man to repent, by its very nature, it offends people who do not have new hearts. And matter of fact, let's go beyond that, and we can say that it would be unloving not to 
to share the hard truth of the gospel from God's word with people. We must do that. We must share that offensive gospel. It would be unloving not to do that. 2 Corinthians 5.14 teaches us, for the love of Christ controls us. And what's he talking about in that passage? He's talking about us being ambassadors, us being ministers of reconciliation. So we must be controlled by the love of Christ and therefore share the offensive gospel to the world. But as I've said before, and I'll say today again, when we speak, we must make sure the only thing offending people is the gospel message itself and not us, not our manner of speaking it. Many of you know the story of the great Christian pastor, really philosopher, thinker of the early church, St. Augustine. And you know that prior to his conversion, Augustine was a wicked man. I mean, he went after every worldly pleasure he could go after without any apology whatsoever. His mother prayed dearly for his conversion. That was part of what God used to bring him to the faith eventually. Eventually, he would be convicted by some words he heard, some children speaking. God would use that to convict his heart, and ultimately it was the Scriptures that opened his heart. But there was another piece of Augustine's conversion. It was a man by the name of Ambrose. Ambrose was a preacher in those days. And Augustine, speaking about Ambrose, it says he hated everything Ambrose said. Why? Because Ambrose was speaking the gospel. And as a lost man, he hated the gospel. He hated everything Ambrose had to say, but Augustine went on to say, but there was one thing I couldn't shake, and that was Ambrose's love. Ambrose's love. And it was that love that Ambrose had toward Augustine that was one of the things God used to open up Augustine's heart. There is a way to speak the offensive gospel in a gloriously loving way. How do we know if we are speaking in love? Well, when the message is rejected... Does it anger us? Does it cause us to get impatient with the person? Are we tempted to mock their insolence? Do we just think about us after it's all said and done, how we feel? Does our heart resonate more with James and John in Luke 9, where upon being rejected by a Samaritan village, they wanted to call down fire? Or does our heart resound more with Jesus, who in Matthew 23, upon being rejected by his own people in Jerusalem, wept over his people? Oh, friends, do not forget that our words reveal what is in our heart. Presence or lack of love will reveal not only in the words we say, but the way we say them, Matthew 12, 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Wayne Mack, in his excellent book entitled Maximum Impact, says this. You and I may be able to speak in the language of the people with whom we associate and say words that they can understand. We may be able to speak to children in one way, talk to our mates in another way, talk to our neighbors, talk to our church members, saying the things that are true and the things they need to hear. But if our words are not permeated, motivated, and saturated, if they do not drip with love, not only will the best of our words be useless, but many people will be turned off and annoyed. If you speak the truth without love, you actually demonstrate that you don't know the truth as you should. You don't fully understand the very gospel you are speaking. But Paul isn't just worried about how we speak the truth. He moves on. And as he does, I'm afraid this morning his words only begin to get more and more and more convicting. So we also see not only the requirement of love and that we, if we boldly and eloquently speak the truth without love, we proclaim nothing. Secondly, we see that confidently and accurately knowing deep truth without love attains nothing. Verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... 
And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now this time the I am, it's actually a different word than the earlier I am nothing. Right here when he says I am, he's not so talking about our identity as we saw before, but our value. So this could really be translated, I'm worth nothing. What does Paul mean by prophetic powers? Well, before the end of the apostolic age and the resultant close of the apostolic revelation, the close of the canon, the gift of prophecy, like tongues, was a means by which God's word was given to the church. Those with the gift of prophecy spoke forth God's word for the church with authority and power. But today the gift of prophecy correlates with the ability to speak and preach the spirit-inspired prophetic word found here in the Bible. It's the ability to know exactly where to go in the scriptures to deal with whatever we're dealing with. So in verse 2, it is connected with the previous verse, but Paul in this verse is expanding beyond proclamation gifts and begins to refer to, to the spiritual gifts of knowledge and understanding. He says, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, we must know that head knowledge, and you guys know this, head knowledge about God, even deep head knowledge about God, means nothing in and of itself. The Apostle James reminds us of this in James 2, 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons even have a, a, an emotional reaction to the truth. But it's not, it's not a, a saving understanding of the knowledge of God. Demons have no love for God and no love for mankind. But they probably have a better theology proper than do most American Christians. And don't forget that Satan, as evidenced in the account of Jesus' temptation, knows the Bible front and back and has more scripture memorized than any of us in here. So don't bank your hopes on how well you grasp the scriptures or how deep your knowledge or theology is. Friends, I'm afraid that one of the problems in churches like ours is that we too often get our sense of value. And remember, this is a value judgment. Earlier it was about our identity. Now it's a value judgment. We get our sense of value from the deep doctrine we can regurgitate or from the theological knowledge we possess or from the spiritual giants whose works and books we've read or from the awesome teachers that we have queued up on our podcast app. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you have up here in your brain if it doesn't flow out here in your heart, if it doesn't affect you right here in your heart. Even if we have remarkable spirit-wrought faith which is strong and unwavering. It does not, does not matter if we're not using it to build others up, if we're not using it for loving purposes. Verse 2, and if I have all faith, complete faith, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Again, the Apostle James earlier in that same chapter, chapter 2, this time in verse 14, he says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. As one of my fellow elders said this week, as we met and we discussed this passage, He was saying it in a way to sort of challenge folks in our church. When you're talking to fellow members in the body, don't quote Calvin. Invite them to dinner. In other words, your grasp of theology means nothing if you don't have hospitality. 
Let the hospitality prove you believe the theology. Oh, friends, let us see that the health of this church is not determined primarily by our doctrine, but by our love. What was the problem in the church of Ephesus? Demer sort of spoke about this earlier in the Revelation where the Apostle John was inspired by Christ to write to these churches. Well, let me look, let me look at that real, again real quickly. Revelation 2.2. 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So let me pause right there. So you have a church that has good doctrine. They have good discernment. They've been able to weed out the bad doctrine. And then look at verse 3. I know you are patiently enduring and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So beyond good doctrine, we see that they have strong and unwavering faith. They're standing firm on the word of God. But then we get to verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. The problem was that they had forgotten to love. They had walked away from what Paul had taught them in that Ephesians 4 passage I referred to earlier. And this was very, very serious. This wasn't a minor thing. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. The works. That's the conduct within the household of God. Do the works you did at first. If not, here's the danger. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Oh, friends, it was to the Ephesian elders, the same church, in Acts 20, when Paul is giving his his final word of farewell, and he warned them that from among their own ranks, from among the elders, would arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so how did that play out? Paul warns it's going to happen. And how does it play out? Well, from Revelation written decades later to the same church. It wasn't just that bad doctrine could draw away the disciples. They fought that off. But we see that loveless doctrine is just as dangerous. Loveless doctrine is as twisted as false doctrine. Perhaps even more so because it contradicts and thus negates the actual truth. So let me remind you of what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who was a pastor at that exact same church in Ephesus. By the way, it's an interesting study, the church of Ephesus. We have a lot of data about the church of Ephesus. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain, vain discussion, nothingness. Vain discussion, verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Swerving away from love makes us empty, vain, inward-focused teachers of truths that we really obviously don't understand. Listen to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines, listen to this, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You may really not know what you think you know when you put your value in how much doctrine you possess. You may not really know what you think you know. Oh, Harbins, I have spent 
last 10 years, laying down a doctrinal foundation for Harbin's. And so like the Apostle Paul, I challenge you in the years to come, not only to hold fast to the truth, but to validate that truth with your love. Love one another deeply and love those outside the church sincerely and your lampstand will burn bright for decades to come. But Paul's not done here. Verse 2 hits the more doctrinally minded churches like ours. Verse 3 hits more social justice minded churches. Hits them really hard. So no one, no one is outside of the crosshairs of Paul's convicting words. So let us see the next point this morning. Not only does the requirement of love teach us that boldly and eloquently speaking the truth without love proclaims nothing, confidently and accurately knowing deep truth without love attains nothing, finally, generously and sacrificially living out the truth without love gains nothing. Verse 3, if I give away all I have, let me just pause right there. Why did I word it the way I worded it? That sacrificially living out the truth. Because we were just told earlier from James that the truth is not the truth unless you're actually doing something with it. But there's actually a way of doing something with it that itself is empty and nothing. And that's what we're getting to here. Verse 3, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now this, this may sound a bit confusing at first. You might be thinking, aren't those things that Paul just mentioned, aren't those the very evidence of our love? Doesn't Jesus say in Luke 12, 33, to sell your possessions and give to the needy? Doesn't he also say in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends? Aren't the actions by the very nature of what they are proof that we have love? And Steve, haven't you challenged us to, to give of our time and our, and our talents and our treasures based on texts like 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 and following? By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So how do we square that with this? Well, friends, let me say there is a way to do what we are called to do in that 1 John three sixteen passage while still not being truly loving and I think the key to seeing this is one little word in this verse. One little word. It's the word gain. Look at verse 3 again. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Gain is a word that speaks to our motive. Our motive. If we do these things with the wrong motive, then they are nothing. But... That word gain, that's counterintuitive to us. That doesn't sound right. You mean we should be trying to gain something? Paul says that our motive should have some sort of gain in it. Or as other translators put it, profit. We profit nothing if we don't have love. So obviously we are to have love so that we can profit, so we can gain, so we can get something. But what? What profit, what gain should be a motive that accompanies true love that makes these actions real? Now, before I can explain that further, we can argue, and we should argue, that there are plenty of people making sacrifices for sinful gain. There are sinful profit that people are aiming after a lot of times when they make sacrifices, especially financial sacrifices. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? 
They gave money in Acts 5 to try to win the approval of others. That was their gain, the approval of others. Well, you know what that cost them. Uh, the Jewish leaders spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, they gave in an attempt to impress onlookers, to impress people. That was their gain, the applause of men. The Pharisees in Luke chapter 18, verse 12, the Pharisee, I should say, he gave and he even lived sacrificially in an attempt to impress God. His gain was brownie points with God. Look what I have achieved. So too, people in the church today give and sacrifice for lots of sinful reasons. To gain attention, to gain influence in the church, to gain freedom from a guilty conscience, to gain favor with God, to gain a tax write-off. You know, people talk today about how if churches continue to preach the gospel and continue not to bend on the issues of the sexual revolution that we find ourselves in, the government's going to take away our tax-exempt status, to which I say, bring it on. Because you'll find out after that how many people are giving for the right reasons. And so what's going on here? Those are sinful motives. That's sinful gain. So what type of gain, what type of profit is Paul speaking of in verse 3? Let me start by saying that we, we have bought into a false idea regarding sacrificial living and sacrificial giving, which says that all of our actions, if they be pure, must be stoic and completely disinterested in any sort of personal reward. But that is not true. That does not square with the Bible. Paul here is speaking about gaining something. There is a type of gain that is not selfish and that is not sinful. So we must see from Paul that what marks truly loving action is action that is motivated out of a good and joyful gain that one inextricably gets from loving God. I'll try to explain this more. Paul's concept of horizontal sacrificial love between man and man is only authentic when it is an extension of our vertical, all-satisfying love of God. The gain is God. That's what the gain is. Love of God, love of man, let's come back to the beginning of the sermon, are inextricably tied together. You can't just have love of God over here and then have some sort of disinterested love for man over here. No, the love of God fuels the love for man. And that love of God is tremendously satisfying and gratifying. That's the gain. That's the gain. That's what we want. It's for our love for man to be motivated by the joy we get in loving God and freely letting go of our stuff, even letting go of our life to love those made in the image of God. That's the gain. The love between man and God is the most joyful, the most rewarding, the most satisfying, the most exhilarating experience any human being can have. Thus, the motive that drives genuine love for man is the treasure, the gain of more deeply desiring and experiencing God's love. So the gain we have in our love of God fuels our love for men. Don't you see? We've come full circle here. Again, love of God, love of man tied together. We gladly and joyfully give what we have to others, to one another, because we know that in giving away of our time, our treasure, and our talents, 
even giving away our lives for others, we are actually giving ourselves to God and nothing stirs up our hearts with greater joy, with greater ecstasy, with greater gratification than the gain of our loving relationship with God. Did you listen to the songs we sang about the glory of God's love in Jesus Christ? Did that not stir you up as you heard those songs? Woo, what love we have in Christ and that fuels everything we do. There's the gain. As John Piper likes to say, love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. Let me say that again. Basically, Piper in one sentence said everything a whole lot better than I just said in four paragraphs. Love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. Now, let's just stay in the church in Corinth for a second to see that fleshed out. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Listen closely. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, did you hear that? Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Do you see the motive here? Do you see the gain? These Macedonians are willing to give away in the midst of their poverty because it was a joy for them. They were gaining something by doing this. Verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves, and here's the two loves tied together. Listen to this. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That explains the joy. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Verse 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, listen to this, that your love also is genuine. What proves that our love is genuine? It's a great gain and joy for us and to give, to serve, to sacrifice. If you're just stoic, I'm going to give, it's my duty. Here's a percentage of my income I need to give. It's my duty to give to the church. That is not what Paul has in mind. He wants you to give. Whew, it is my joy to give as much as God wants me to give. It is my pleasure. It is gain to do this. That's real love. That's real love. So don't buy into a definition of agape. I do believe there's different types of love in the Greek language. But a lot of times people say agape is a disinterested love that's simply a choice. No. Agape is a passionate love that's a joy. It is a choice, but it's a choice we freely want to make because it's gain. It's gain. Why was it gain for the Macedonians to give themselves away? Because it was an overflow of their love for God. And so what you put into this little box here should be motivated by your gain as you draw nearer and nearer to God in love. 
Is the sacrifice of your precious time motivated by this type of gain? Is the sacrifice of your service to this body motivated by this type of gain? Or is it simply a stoic duty? We asked for nursery workers this week. I would rather have a nursery worker who is serving for gain than a nursery worker that's serving out of guilt because they got an email. Don't sign up. Don't sign up if you feel guilted into this. Sign up if the love of God is flowing through this church the way it should. That's when you sign up. And it's gain to give up one Sunday out of every six weeks to clean snotty little noses and little rear ends and other stuff. It's gain. It's gain. It's a joy. The love between man and God is the most joyful and rewarding thing I could point you to today. Friends, we should see what Jesus was talking about now in Matthew 7. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, what does he say? I never knew you. That is a word of intimate knowledge. I was never in a deep, loving, abiding relationship with you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Love of God, relationship with God, flowing out to others. That's what makes 1 Corinthians 13 genuine. Paul is concerned that these Christians in Corinth, despite their ability to speak the truth powerfully, despite their ability to examine doctrine deeply and to live sacrificially, they were but babies in the faith. Harbins, we are not mature Christians simply because we can eloquently outline the essentials of the gospel or because we can articulate the five points of Calvinism, or because we have our eschatology all wrapped up in a neat little bow, or because we give a certain percentage of our income to the church. No, we are mature Christians when and only when when we are driven by and fueled by and empowered by genuine love overflowing from our relationship with God. The problem at Corinth wasn't that they were not gifted. The problem is that they were not loving. It was all zeros. Harbins, the same problem exists here, maybe not to the same degree. We have all the gifts we need in this body. But oh, that God would stir us up with more love. All satisfying love for God, flowing out in joyful love for mankind. So let me just close with the scripture, and then we're going to come to the table. 1 John 4, 7, we read this earlier, but we need to hear it again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's love abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray.